Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. How do you imagine the relationship between Shakespeare and his wife? Maggie O'Farrell joins us to talk about her most recent novel, Hamnet. What's Rachel Cusk up to in her latest novel? Judith Shulovitz will be here to talk about Second Place and Cusk's approach to fiction. Alexander Alter will be here with the latest in publishing news. Plus, our critics will join us for the latest in literary criticism. This is the Book Review Podcast from The New York Times. It's May 21st. I'm Pamela Paul. This is John Williams. In Hamnet, her eighth novel, Maggie O'Farrell imagines the life of William Shakespeare, his wife Anne Hathaway, or Agnes, and the life and death of one of the couple's children, Hamnet, who died at 11 in 1596. In O'Farrell's novel, he dies of the plague, and the book imagines the impact that this event might have had on arguably Shakespeare's greatest play, Hamlet. Hamnet won the National Book Critics Circle Award for Fiction, and it was named by the New York Times Book Review as one of its 10 best books of 2020, with the editors calling it a bold feat of imagination and empathy. And Maggie O'Farrell is here to talk about it from Edinburgh. Hi, Maggie. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good. What do we know historically that's in this novel? Just how bare are the bones that you were working with when you sat down? (laughs) Well, I mean, they are. Shakespeare himself is quite a shadowy figure. There's an awful lot about him we don't know, despite the very best efforts of the world's most brilliant scholars and Shakespearean academics. So it is mysterious. You know, we only have say, six examples of his signature, all of which are spelt differently. <laughs> so there are lots of longers and gaps in his story. You know, if we think we know very little about him, we know even less about his wife, the woman we've been told to call Anne Hathaway, and his children. You know, we only... Hamnet himself, the boy, is lucky if he gets possibly two mentions in these big biographies of Shakespeare. And they mentioned he was born and they mentioned that he died, like you say, in 1596. But actually, I mean, to be honest, that that is all we do know about Little Hamlet, unfortunately. We have the record of his birth in the parish records, and then we see the record of his burial. But then we have this extraordinary, towering echo of his name in Shakespeare's play, which he went on four or five years after Hamlet died to write. And what do we know about, well, first of all, tell the story about how you found out to call her Agnes, which I think is a great detail. Well, you know, as I was saying, I mean, what we know about the woman that Shakespeare married is very, very little indeed. She was actually born before parish records commenced. So we don't actually know the date of her birth. We know that they got married. We know that she was six months pregnant when they got married or thereabouts because they had a daughter, Susanna, six months after they they were married. But it wasn't wasn't unusual for brides to be pregnant in those days because they had this ritual called hand fasting, which is a bit like an engagement. And it, it seems to be, if you look at the parish records and then check them against the birth records, it seems to be that about a third or a quarter of brides were pregnant when they went to the altar. So hand fasting was obviously a different kind of fasting as well. <laughs> <laughs> and we know that she lived to, for a pretty great age. She lived until well into her 60s, which those days was extraordinary when the you know average life expectancy was 47. 
I think what intrigued me most about her, or what shocked me, I should probably say, when I was researching the book, is that given how little we know about her, this hasn't stopped so many people from piling in to criticise her and vilify her and treat her with such terrible opprobrium and hostility. You know, we've always been taught this one single narrative about Anne Hathaway, and that's from historians and scholars, other novelists, writers of Oscar-winning screenplays. They've all told us that she was an older, strumpet peasant woman who lured this boy genius into marriage and that he hated her, that he had to run away to London to get away from her. He sorely regretted his ever marrying her. And, you know, I have never, ever, despite trawling through as many books as I possibly can on the subject, found a single shred of evidence for this. In one of the other interviews you've done, you said there's such a myth surrounding her and it's all filled with hate. It made me wonder if one of the things you had in mind while you were writing this is the question of why we don't conjecture more generously about people. I don't know whether it is some strange desire for our male artists to be footloose and fancy free. I don't know why we there is this overwhelming urge to give Shakespeare a retrospective divorce. You know, what is that about? <laughs> you know, I, I I think he did love her. I think they loved each other. I think there was a partnership. And and the most significant detail for me was not the one that everybody will bring up to criticize her, which is of course the famous second best bed behest in Shakespeare's will, which is an interlineation. It's squeezed in between two lines. And his will is a very dry document. He doesn't show any affection for anybody at all at any of his behests. I mean, he was dying, <laughs> let's not forget. But you wouldn't think the will was written by the same person that came from the same mind as the person who wrote probably the greatest lines of love poetry. But what's more significant to me is that at the end of his career in London, he was the equivalent of a multimillionaire. He was a very, very good businessman. But he could have set up household anywhere he wanted to in the world. But when he retired, he came back to Stratford to live with his wife, which to me is much more telling. And I think what really struck me when I was researching the character of Anne Hathaway is that I read her father's will. So her father, Richard Hathaway, died a year before she married William. And in his will, he leaves her a very generous dowry. And he refers to her as my daughter, Agnes, or it would have been pronounced close to the French, Agnes or Annis. And that felt like a kind of lightning bolt moment because I thought, you know, it just seemed emblematic of how she has been treated that we've looks as though we've been calling her by the wrong name for almost half a millennium. So I decided to give this name back to her because I want readers to forget everything they think they know about Mrs. Shakespeare and open themselves up to a new interpretation of a different woman they haven't yet met. She strikes such a figure in your introduction of her in the book, which is when William, who is tutoring a family of kids in Latin, looks out the window and sees her, doesn't know who she is yet, and sees her walking with this kestrel on her I guess on her wrist or her shoulder or... <laughs> on her, yeah, on her glove. You have on to have glove. a glove for a kestrel. They got very sharp, very sharp claws. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I wonder how you initially saw her in your mind. Was she that striking? I mean, she kind of enters in this very intriguing way in the novel. You, you can't wait to get to know who this person is. I mean, I think their marriage was unusual for the time, partly because she, I mean, I think she, she was about the average age of a bride. She was 26. And like I said, she came from a quite respectable family and she had this pretty sizable dowry. But he was, by contrast, was 18. He was underage. So in order to get married, they had to have a special license. And his family, by contrast, had been of quite high social standing in Stratford. His father had been a very successful glover. But in more recent years, the family's finances had taken a huge hit and their social standing had taken a huge hit because his father, John Shakespeare, had started illegally trading in wool and he'd got himself into all kinds of debt and trouble. He'd been held up in court for not attending church. He had a summons and had to pay a fine because he dumped what's described as Audier on the street outside their house on Henley Street. 
And so <laughs> I, mean, I, I think we can fill in those blanks. We don't, even know, we, we don't want to go into what that was. <laughs> so, you know, by contrast, his family had sort of taken this big downturn. And I think their marriage is intriguing to me because, you know, I think everybody has always throughout history has said, why did he marry her? Why did this boy genius marry this probably illiterate woman? In her book, Shakespeare's Wife, Jermaine Greer says that we've been asking the wrong question all along, that we should have been asking, why did she marry him? You know, why did this girl with a good dowry and from a you know, respectable family marry this penniless, tradeless boy of 18? Right. He's not He's not the author of Hamlet at this point, he's to say the least. I mean, I think he was probably a bit of an oddball. You know, I think how, how much he must have stuck out in a small rural market town in the English countryside. I mean, we know now, of course, what was inside his mind, what he was capable of. But then, I mean, I think probably people thought him just a bit of a bit of a strange one, I imagine. So I think I was I was trying to envisage him at the time through her eyes and thinking, you know, why would she have married him? Why would she have chosen him when she could have married, you know, a, probably quite a respectable, wealthy farmer? And I thought, well, maybe she saw something in him that others didn't. Maybe she saw what he was. Maybe she had a glimpse of, of what he would be in future be capable of. So I suppose it was that that kind of idea of slight sort of second sights like prophecy, which of course is something that runs throughout the plays. You know, you, you'd be hard pressed to find a play where there's not some sense of prophecy, future destiny involved in it. So I, I was just intrigued by that idea. So, that, that, so that's why she is the person she is in my book. Well, thanks for that segue, because I was about to ask about the prophecy angle of things. Our reviewer, Geraldine Brooks, described Agnes as close to the natural world and uncannily intuitive. I would say that it's fair to say that she's more like clairvoyant, that she senses things in a kind of supernaturalish way. She sees the future and she she knows details about people's lives before they tell her. How was it to get inside that mindset? And I wonder, having read your your memoir, I Am, I Am, I Am, which is about 17 near-death experiences you've had and, and has a very, if not supernatural, uh, an eerie quality for sure. I wondered whether you felt any kinship with that sense of feeling the, the sort of tides of fate moving around more more clearly. God, I wish I did have second sight. It would be something that would be very <laughs> useful for me in life and in work. Unfortunately, I don't. <laughs> so maybe Agnes was a kind of wish fulfillment character for me. I mean, I think I was looking back mostly at the plays, at Shakespeare's writing and the themes that he grappled with, and also particularly his female characters. I wanted to be quite circumspect and careful not to read too much biography into his plays, because I, I think that's a slippery slope. And I think his plays are filled with they are filled with very mysterious female characters who are prophet. You know, I'm thinking of the witches and Macbeth who can tell things and have, you know, and also a tiny bit of Ophelia as well. I feel that Ophelia is this very marginalised figure in Hamlet. I mean, deliberately so, you know, she's made marginal, but also she has this incredible insight, which is revealed in the scene where she's mad and she hands people cures, she hands people plants, which are every single one is a cure for a flaw that she perceives in their character. So I was just thinking about that. And I, I think that's where Agnes came from. But also, I think it's important to remember that as a society, people in the 16th century were much more closely tied to the natural world than we are, much more tied to the you know cycle of the seasons and the sort of circadian rhythms, the diurnal cycle, and also to superstition. In one strange way, you know, you had to go to church. It was against the law not to attend church once a week. And you would be fined and held up in court if you didn't attend but conversely, I think also people, there was this great belief in superstition and prophecy and the supernatural and witchcraft, you know, I mean, I, I, and I think we have to remember that, you know, that there is a huge discrepancy between the society and our lives today and then there were from the people in the 16th century. So I suppose I was, I was tapping into that as well. 
It is interesting because in the book she has such a it's such a combination of those things that feel a little unworldly, but then she's so incredibly tied to the earth and the plants and the the bees and all of these other things. I know that you've been working on this, or not working on this book, but you've been thinking about working on this book for a very long time, and that you are the author of many novels, and that over the years you've gone back to this a bit and tried your hand at it, and then for one reason or another put it aside. And I'm wondering if there are any big ways that, well, first of all, just whether you ever got far enough into it for much to change, or whether there was ever any kind of different grand design for it than the final product. It is a book that I wanted to write for for a long time, but I did have, and in fact, I had my own brand of superstition about it. Not that I'm a very superstitious person, but I I knew that in order to write the book, I was going to have to put myself inside the mind of a woman who is forced to sit at her son's bedside and, and have to watch him die and then lay him out for burial. And I, you know, I, I have a son and two daughters myself, just like the Shakespeare's did, but actually they're in a slightly different birth order. My son's the eldest. And I, I realised that I was <laughs> going to be unable to write this book until my own son was past the age of 11, which, of course, is the age that Hamlet died. Not that there was a big risk of him contracting the Black Death, <laughs> mm-hmm. but you never know. And I just I just couldn't do it. Every now and again, I would make a sort of, I would start researching it and I would make a kind of foray and I'd, I'd start typing a little bit of the, uh, writing a bit of the story and, and I just found myself veering away from it. I thought, I, I, I don't want to go to that place. I don't want to imagine that this event happening. Because I knew that inevitably I would be thinking about my son when I was creating the character of Hamnet. You know? And, and I'm, I do remember watching my son at the age of 11, watching him and his friends, because it is a very interesting developmental age, 11. It is a sort of high watermark of childhood. It's childhood's final months, you know, before you start the sort of tip into adolescence and it is, there's something particularly poignant about 11-year-olds, I find, not just because I obviously was thinking about Hamlet. So anyway, so, so that was that was the major reason why. And I've actually written three books instead of writing Hamlet <laughs> <laughs> as a kind of distraction. But then when I finished writing my memoir, I sort of gave myself a talking to. I sort of looked myself in the eye and said, you know, you either have to do this book or you've got to forget about it. You know, you've just got to write it or move on to something else. You can't keep circling around it. So I don't know why, but for some reason, it just seemed like the right point in my life and the planet seemed aligned and it was just the right time to write it. Reading about this book before I read it, it was hard for me to tell just how much the balance was between Agnes Hamnet and Shakespeare himself. And then when I read it, I realized they are all three major characters in the book, although William, as has been pointed out many times, is not is never named in the book. You never call him William or Shakespeare. And so was he ever a more central character? Or was this always going to be her story and and the story of the grief? of the son and, and his life? I always knew it was going to be a kind of ensemble novel. I knew that I wanted at least the first half to mostly focus on Hamlet because the engine behind the book for me was always the fact that I think Hamlet has been overlooked and underwritten by history. You know, I think he's been consigned to a literary footnote. And I mean, I believe quite strongly that without him, without his very short and tragically short life, we, we wouldn't have the play Hamlet. You know, we probably wouldn't have Twelfth Night and I think as a as as an audience, we are enormously in debt to him. And I think, you know, I, I find it strange always that when I read books about Shakespeare, that Hamlet's life was very downplayed and that people would wrap up his death in statistics about child mortality. And almost as if the implication was that the, that he wasn't grieved because, you know, so many children died. And also, you know, I find it astonishing that nobody has ever really made much of the fact that it's the same name, you know, in, in Elizabethan times, spelling was a lot less stable. Hamlet and Hamlet are interchangeable in parish records. It's the same name. And I've read biographers saying, you know, we, we've no idea what the significance is. And I want to kind of shake these people and say, are you, 
Are you serious? <laughs> Come on. Nobody, nobody would take their dead child's name lightly. That is not an act that you'd undertake lightly and give it to the title of, your, of, of this tragedy, to give it to the, the protagonist of the tragedy and also the ghost. You know, the idea that he would have had to write that name over and over again in the manuscript, he would have had to hear it over and over again during the rehearsals and also speak it himself because it is, there is a, a written evidence that Shakespeare himself took the role of the ghost in the first production of Hamlet. And I don't think any parent would do that lightly. It's an act of enormous significance. And, you know, Shakespeare, for all his mystery, the fact that he is this very shadowy figure, it's always seemed to me that in that act of calling this play and the protagonist and the ghost after his dead son, he becomes briefly visible to us as a human being, as a person, as a heartbroken father. You're very convincing when you talk about it and in the book about the connections that you're making and the way that you say that uh, you feel very strongly that we wouldn't have the play without... Hamnet, and we might not have Twelfth Night. And Shakespeare is, as you know better than anyone, probably not the most placid subject. There are what are called the Shakespeare Wars. And because there are so many gaps in our knowledge about him, I think those are filled in by very passionately contested imaginings of what he might have been like. So even though clearly you're writing fiction and have a lot of license to do so, I wonder if there's been any strange reaction to the book or any fevered feelings from people who think that your, your hypotheses go against their life's work. <laughs> <laughs> not that I'm aware of. I mean, actually, to be very honest, I tend not to read my reviews, so I wouldn't know, actually. But as far as I know, nobody has come out and said, how dare you, or <laughs> who knows? Maybe there are, though. You know, you've got to give a sort of allowance for people that are going to have ideas that diverge from yours. And I think people, especially people who are involved in you know the very long interpretations of Shakespeare's people are going to have their own ideas and interpretations everybody has their own version of Shakespeare inside their head you know and that's and that's fine you know I think everybody's allowed a different interpretation aren't they it, it's not that I would watch somebody else's or read somebody else's and feel enraged I would just think well <laughs> their, their vision of it differs from mine I avoided watching any screen versions of him while I was writing the book just because I didn't I didn't want that in my head but you know I know for a fact that Ben Elton has a, has a comedy series about Mike. My son is a is a fan of the comedy series, actually, but I, I haven't watched it myself. Just because, not because I think it would upset me, just because I know that it would be different from mine, and that's that's fine. <laughs> I guess I just I have a twisted sense of humor. I guess I just find it comical that people probably working in more historical veins, trying to find the capital T truth, are, are probably wedded to these things that are somewhat fictional themselves. But he he certainly comes alive in the book and not really as the playwright. I mean, like you're saying, for most of the book, there's just a sense of him as this very young and he might have potential, but he doesn't feel like an important historical figure. He just feels like this person who's living his life. And I guess I'll finish by asking you, you know, you said early on that you believe they were in love and there's a lot of less charitable conjecture out there. And so I guess I'll ask with sort of a romantic question, which is what does your will see in your Agnes and what does she see in him? And why are they together in, in your mind? Well, I think there's, in my novel anyway, and the way I see them, I think it's a kind of exchange of different types of artistry. So much has been made of the fact that the wife of Shakespeare was possibly illiterate. And to be honest, she probably was, because what daughter of a sheep farmer in 16th century would have been taught to read. I mean, it's possible he taught her later on, but I mean, I think mostly she probably was illiterate. But you know, it, it it's not it's not a huge stretch to say illiteracy doesn't necessarily mean stupidity. There are other types of intelligence, and I've always been fascinated by 
the, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I'm not alone in this, the reach of Shakespeare's metaphors. You know, he, in, in throughout his plays and poetry, he displays an extraordinary breadth of knowledge across an astonishing number of subjects. And I think I just like the idea that some of these he might have got from her. So obviously we were talking about the, the herbology in, in Hamlet. So he's obviously writing about that from a very informed perspective. And it, it is well known that it was the woman of the household who had to have that kind of knowledge that every household would have had their own little physic garden. And the woman of the house would have been able to make potions and cures for minor ailments within her household. So I just imagine the idea that he got all this knowledge from her. And I love the fact that he might have been checking with her and saying, what, what exactly was rosemary used for? <laughs> how, do you, how do you use comfrey? So I gave that to her. And also there's a lot of hawking and falconry metaphors in Shakespeare, particularly about relationships between men and women. You find that a lot in Taming of the Shrew, for example. So again, I gave, I gave that expertise to her, the idea that he may have got, he may have drawn this knowledge and inspiration from her. She was a formidable person in your book. And so I guess he was also drawn to just the force of her personality and her aura. Exactly. Yeah, I think there's a strong physical attraction between them. And she was drawn to a, a good looking young guy with potential. <laughs> well, I think he's good looking, yes. But as he was, you know, the, the portraits there are of him, I, I think she was as well. There's a portrait of her. She's very beautiful. She looks, she bears more than a passing resemblance to the actress Saoirse Ronan. I think what she saw in him was something unusual. I think he and I, I think he must have been very unusual in Stratford upon Avon, and certainly not like your average sheep farmer that she would have been mixing with socially in, in and around Shottery. Well, it is a love story among other things, but it is a story very much about grief and creativity, and about finding yourself living in a very different time as you read the book. Maggie, thanks so much for joining us to talk about it. That's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you had more time in the day, would you take a nap, read a book, talk with a friend? When something's important to you, it's easier to make time for it. Therapy can help you decide what matters most. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on your schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash book review today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash book review. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I think I know this connection. Look, Bath is a city in England, Sandwich is a city in England, Reading is a city in England, and I'm going to guess Derby is a city in England. I started Wordle 194 days ago, and I haven't missed a day. The New York Times Games app has all the games right there. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. I always have to get genius. I've seen you yell at it and say, that <laughs> should be a word. Totally should be a word. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. At this point, I'm probably more consistent with doing the crossword than brushing my teeth. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. When I have to look up a clue to help me, I'm learning something new. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. Joining us now to celebrate the 125th anniversary of the New York Times Book Review, Tina Jordan. Hey, Tina. Hi, Pamela. So this week, I want to bring you one of my all-time favorite articles from the archives, which is from 1914. And it's got a fabulous headline, which is Tango, Motors, Golf, and Movies, movies in quote, are enemies of books. And it's an interview with the British publisher, William Heinemann, who's visiting New York. 
And here's what he had to say to the Times reporter. The publishing business is changing every day, he said. One very regrettable thing about it is that the life of books is shorter than it used to be. Everywhere it's the same thing. A book dies so much more quickly than it used to. As a matter of fact, very few books survive five years. Of course, this made me smile, and I'm sure it made you smile too, because now sometimes, you know, a book doesn't get five months of a chance at the bookstore. Anyway, so here's why Heinemann thought this was happening over 100 years ago. He said, to what is this due? People nowadays have just so much time to read and no more. Most of them want the news of the day. They're particularly interested in actualities. They read the newspapers in preference to books, especially those of the kind that require a bit of mental effort. Many other things, of course, are serious rivals to reading because they compete with it for attention. Things which did not exist in the old days. There is, for instance, motoring. And there is golf playing. Tango dancing might be mentioned as another thing. Then, one of the greatest enemies of books of all is the moving picture show, which tells a story in a way that makes a peculiar appeal to people, a much stronger appeal in most cases than the printed word. What year is this? This is 1914. These problems remain, especially the tangoing. How can we have time to read <laughs> when we have to tango? When we have to tango, exactly. So I have to say, you know, maybe tango is no longer, you know, competing for our book reading attention, but certainly the lure of the screen still there. Still there. All right, Tina, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Pamela. Judith Shulovitz joins us now from New York. She is a cultural critic and a journalist, the author of The Sabbath World. And this week, she reviews for us Rachel Cusk's latest novel. It's called Second Place. Judith, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Pamela. So let's start at the very beginning. Let's start with the author. I think she's a name known to many, but not everyone has read her. Who is Rachel Cusk? Well, she was born in Canada. She was raised in England. And she's a writer with a really distinctive tone. She's written memoirs, she's written novels, she's written essays. And all of them have this very clean, clinical, analytical tone with an edge of self-loathing, self-questioning. So everything she writes has a kind of wonderful way of bringing in what people don't allow themselves to think. Without being unduly negative, she has a tremendous curiosity about what she thinks about herself, what she thinks about the world, what other people think about the world. She's a wonderful writer, and I'm a huge fan of her outline trilogy, which are the most recent three books that she's written. You, Pamela, I understand, have read the memoirs, which I have not, so you could tell us about those if you wanted. She's written a couple that are very well known, I think, here. The first is A Life's Work on Becoming a Mother, which came out in 2001, at least I think here in the States. And I read that well after my children were babies. This is a memoir about pregnancy, childbirth, and immediately after. And what was controversial about it was that she wasn't unilaterally thrilled with the experience of new motherhood. She wrote about ambivalence and kind of negative emotions in a way that some people took exception to. And when I read it, I was not in the mood to read a memoir of new motherhood, not being a new mother anymore myself, but I thought it was really excellent. I had no trouble with it. And then the other book that was very controversial was Aftermath on Marriage and Separation, in which she writes quite openly about her divorce. I guess there's something maybe that makes people uncomfortable, that her honesty, the rawness of her writing 
the difficult emotions that she writes about. Maybe for some readers, and I include myself in that group, I find it refreshing and interesting, and that's what makes it good. And I think others are perhaps offended or upset by the way she writes about things. She writes kind of coldly. I don't think she's cold, but she talks in a Paris Review essay that I read in, while preparing myself for, to review this book about growing up feeling quite unloved, feeling harshly judged. And there's that kind of edge to her writing. She is judgmental, though curious, and I think that puts some people off. I think it contributes to her style. In this review that I wrote for you, I quote Isaac Babel, no iron spike can pierce a human heart as icily as a period in the right place. There's this kind of clinical accuracy to her writing that she brings to bear both on the physical world and on the emotional world that is almost scary, which is what I like. Yes, that's a great quote. And I like judgmental and I like that almost scary aspect of her writing. I was interested in something else you said earlier, which is this idea of self-denial. It's almost like this almost clinical quality to her writing and to the narrator. And I thought it was very interesting that in Outline, the narrator is unnamed and almost not even present, like other than as a person who's listening to other people talk. And I'm curious how the narrator is treated in this new novel. Very differently. This is a narrator who writes a great deal about herself, her own wants and needs, and we watch her succumb to fantasies that we're skeptical of. She's much more credulous, which is, it's a real departure. It's a very strange book. If you are a fan of the old Rachel Cusk, she takes a lot of risks. So I was mystified, and it's one of the things that kept me reading she also uses a lot of exclamation points. So speaking of punctuation. That feels very uncusk-like. Very uncusk-like. You know, there's you just feel that every comma is thought through usually. And also in, in this book, but just then there are those exclamation points and you just you just don't know what to think. All right, let's go back to the beginning with this book. The novel is called Second Place. It's her 11th novel, although she's written, I think, four nonfiction books. And the opening line of your review is, I can't think of another way to say this. Rachel Cusk's 11th novel, Second Place, is really weird. So let's start with why, and then really just what is this book about? Why it's weird to me is tonal. It seems as though it's written by a very garrulous writer as opposed to a clean clinical writer, like as Rachel Cusk has been. She gushes, she is kind of vague, and she introduces a lot of narratives and themes that are never picked up on. And also she's portentous in a way that is odd. Like she's always saying things like, what is certain is that afterward many changes occurred and you don't know what the changes are exactly that she's talking about, nor do you quite know where and when she is when she speaks either at the beginning of the novel, nor sort of in the body of the novel. And so then I'll, I'll, I'll go into the body of the novel, which is this is the story of a character named M, who has survived a painful life that we don't know exactly what kind of painful life until much later. And we will discover that it has some overlaps with things Cusk has written about before. She has found refuge from civilization at the edge of the world, as it were, at the edge of a beautiful marsh. But we don't know what continent, we don't know what country, we don't know which marsh. There are a lot of mysteries. And the whole book is either a monologue or a letter addressed to 
a character named Jeffers, whose identity will never be revealed. So again, a lot of mysteries. Anyway, what happens is she and her husband have built a cabin to which they invite artists to come and stay. And she has become obsessed with a painter named L, period. We don't, there's a lot of initials here. And she invites him to come stay. He's kind of coy. He's not clear whether he will. He finally shows up. He's kind of a spoiled brat. He shows up trailing a very beautiful young woman of whom M is jealous, though she tries to pretend that she isn't to herself and to us. And she thinks that what L can do for her is depict the beauty and the emotions of the marsh, the beauty of the marsh and the emotions it occasions in her. He can represent that for her and make it real for her through his art. And this is a relationship which is doomed to fail, and the ways in which it fails become quite interesting. Another thing that happens in the novel is that something great and terrible has happened in the world. It's unclear what. It's called the great pandemonium as opposed to pandemic. People have lost their jobs. Her daughter comes home with a boyfriend. Elle's career is tanking because the economy is tanking and the value of his paintings is tanking. So there's this kind of weird, ominous background, which, again, is never explained. I don't want to have you reveal anything like a spoiler. I know there's a kind of surprise in the ending to this book. So we 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 won't go there. We'll leave that for listeners who might want to read this book to discover that for themselves. But another thing you you mentioned in your review is that it has the feeling of a fable. In what way? It is the story of a woman who does not believe she can create art, yet she believes that art is the highest virtue and value in the world. It has this kind of bizarre retrograde gender politics, which we also don't quite understand. Why does she, for example, say that Elle's paintings seem to her quintessentially male? They have a freedom that only a man could have. That just seems to come from another era. And it's the story of her self-realization, but written against this mysterious background with this appearance of a devil, with a very strange relationship. So it has the story of a fable of self-realization and of coming to terms with a question of what art is and what role it plays in our lives. And I want to go back to this question of the spoiler. What you're talking about, Pamela, is that this book has a relationship with another book, which I think helps explain and unpack some of the mysteries of the book. I am the only reviewer I've read who thinks this is a mystery worth withholding. Everyone else gives you the name of the author and gives you the name of the book and tells you what the book is about. I think the mystery of the book lies in the tone and in the gaps in her story. And that when she tells you in a little kind of, not even an afterward, a paragraph when the book is over, what the source text was, and you go to the source text, it explains quite a lot. So I didn't want to spoil it, but everyone else thinks there's no problem with saying who it was. So I'm going to stick with your strategy here, which I think is a, is a good one, because if she left it for, until the end of the book, then I have to assume that was a deliberate choice. I think so. I, I think so. I think you just simply don't understand. And, and you do have to go to the other text, which is available on the internet, although with a lot of punctuation errors, it was obviously electronically transcribed. But you do have to go to that book to understand, I think, the gender politics in particular. It was written by a woman in the first half of the 20th century. It is about a known artist, and it is it is a memoir, and it is about the narrator's 
extremely bizarre and problematic relationship with this artist and her own self-effacing and in some ways cringingly self-effacing relationship to this artist and her own belief that she can't herself create art. So she has to kind of collect artists and form these relationships with them, which the artists then sometimes take advantage of. So what you see in this book is in, in the relationship between the two texts is a parallel between the self-doubt of the woman from the past, which seems of a piece with the with the gender politics of the time, and the odd contemporary gender politics or, or relationship between men and women in this novel. And you, what you see is that there's less difference than you would think. And that's, I think, part of the meaning of the novel. One of the things that struck me about Outline was this this story, this one story that's told in that novel, which is the first in the Outline trilogy, which is Outline and then Transit, and the final volume is called Kudos. I've talked about this part of this novel before on this podcast, but it's an anecdote that's told to the unnamed narrator of the story. And the story that that person tells is this. He's talking or she's talking, I don't remember. And also, let me have another caveat. I probably am getting this wrong. This is a story I've now retold several times, and I've probably changed things and altered it. So, Judith, maybe you'll correct me and remember it more accurately. But there was a story this person told about a dinner party, and the dinner party took place at a table that was underneath a ceiling of glass. And someone at that dinner table told a story about a previous dinner party that also took place underneath a ceiling of glass at which the snow, I think, that had landed on the glass grew so heavy that the glass broke and shattered all over the dinner table. And hearing this story affects the people at the dinner table with the intact ceiling, just hearing about the, the possibility that something like this might happen. And it affected the person who's now telling the story to the narrator, who we kind of feel like is Rachel Cusk, perhaps herself. And then the reader, in reading about it, then feels the kind of horror and shock of that story of like, what would that be like if glass and, and, and snow suddenly poured down in the middle of this dinner party? And to me, it was a story about storytelling and about how just reading or hearing about something happening to someone else then enters your own experience, enters your own consciousness and affects you and can elicit this very gut level emotional response. Do you remember this or do you remember it the way I'm telling it? I do remember it. I don't remember it that clearly because I read Outline when it came out, but I think that's a good reading of it. What we have in Outline is a very strange setup where the narrator encounters one person after another, and each character or set of characters tell her their story. And in a language that seems implausible, given who the characters are, because it has that Cuskian analytical precision and sort of infinitely introspective ability, and yet you suspend your disbelief and you follow it and you're grateful to her for allowing these characters to have such a powerful and articulate voice. So the reason I bring this up, the reason I bring up this story is that I felt like 
in this story, Rachel Cuss was kind of telling us what she was doing in this book, at least in the first volume and outline, which was to say something about the nature of storytelling and something about the nature of the uh, the narrator, the person that's listening, like that whoever it is, and it can be an unnamed person, you're sort of affected by the lives of others. And I think at the time that I talked about this previously on the podcast, I compared it to Emmanuel Carrere's Lives Other Than My Own, which seemed to be pursuing a similar theme. So my question is this. With second place, you said that she clearly seems to be saying something about the role of art. What is it that she is trying to do in this novel? Do you have a good sense? I think it's a novel about the difficulty women have believing in themselves as artists. At the end of her Paris Review interview, she talks about growing up with tremendous self-doubt as a woman that she could be a writer, that she had anything to say, that she was allowed to speak, which surprises me because she's, I think, roughly our age. And I was brought up to think I could do anything. And then it turned out, you know, with motherhood and so on, that actually was harder than I thought. She clearly had a very different experience. So I think that the power of storytelling in this novel is that through the story, she herself, the narrator, realizes herself and realizes that the painter cannot paint for her. I mean, that I hope I'm not giving too much away, but you you start rather shocked at the lack of self-confidence that the narrator has and watch as she grows. So telling her story strengthens her and she's consistently being disappointed by her, the people she encounters and the hopes she has for them, and then realizing that there's a different way to appreciate them and in so doing appreciate herself. So I don't know if it has that breakthrough effect that you're talking about. I think that's particular more to the outline trilogy. In each story in the outline trilogy, the character moves from presenting a problem in their life to sort of starting to have insight. And that's one of the things that's appealing to it, but only partial insight. And usually what then happens is that the narrator says, well, actually, I don't think he or she understood himself at all and proceeds to present a completely different interpretation of the story than you thought was going to be offered. So that's part of the surprise. That doesn't happen here because there's no interlocutor. It's just, it's just this one character. So it's an unfolding rather than a breaking through. Well, it'll be interesting to see if she continues in this vein or if this was just kind of a, a, a one-time deviation from her usual voice and style. It will be. I, I, I suspect it's, it's an exercise in riffing off someone else's work and writing in someone else's voice. So who knows who, whom she'll choose next or if she won't choose that at all. I mean, that's something she does, right? She she takes others' voices and makes them her own. So in that way, it's a continuation of her work. But it will be interesting to see if stylistically she changes. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Judith. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Pamela. Judith Shulovitz reviews Rachel Cusk's second place this week in the book review. Alexander Alter joins us now with some news for the publishing world. Hey, Alexandra. Hey, Pamela. So this week we have an update on the controversy over the Philip Roth biography by Blake Bailey. Not surprisingly, he has found a new publisher, as we thought he might be able to after the book was dropped by Norton in April. 
Norton said that he was free to publish it elsewhere. And just to recap, they dropped the book because Blake Bailey was accused by multiple women of sexual harassment, sexual assault, and inappropriate conduct. So the controversy kind of built and Norton felt like the best thing to do was to totally sever its relationship with him. They not only took the Philip Roth biography out of print, but they took his memoir out of print as well. And so this week it was announced by Skyhorse, an independent publisher, that they are publishing the book now. They'll be releasing it as a paperback in June and they'll have it up as a digital book as well. And they'll be releasing the audiobook, which they are licensing from recorded books. This is an interesting development, but it's not totally surprising. I think when the book was taken out of print, we did see some debate over whether that was a bit of an extreme response, given that there hadn't been really any questions about the content of the book in terms of the veracity of the book. There had been the usual critical takes on what he included and left out and his interpretations. And some critics suggested that Blake Bailey was very sympathetic to Roth, perhaps overly so when it came to the way that Roth treated women and his gripes against his ex-wife and some of his other relationships with women. So what was interesting, I think, in the debate that occurred after Norton decided to take the book out of print was you saw groups like the Authors Guild and others saying, you know, we need to separate the work itself from the behavior of the author. And of course, these are allegations. They haven't been proven. Mr. Bailey denies them. And in that context, the Authors Guild and other groups said, we need to look at what the value of the book is and what people can learn from it and not allow the author's behavior to determine whether or not people can read the book. Skyhorse is kind of an interesting choice and maybe one that we might have predicted because they have lately positioned themselves as this independent publisher that's willing to court controversy and take on authors that maybe mainstream publishers are distancing themselves from. For example, after Hachette dropped Woody Allen's memoir, they were planning to publish his memoir, but then their employees walked out. They faced a lot of pushback from their authors and others on social media. They decided, you know what, we're, we're going to cancel this book. We're not going to publish it. And Skyhorse ended up publishing it. They had a pretty big print run of 75,000 copies. They added an, a little note from Mr. Allen about the whole controversy. So according to Skyhorse, there aren't going to be any major changes to the Philip Roth biography. And according to Mr. Bailey, he is still well within his rights. According to the agreement, he signed with the Roth estate to include all the materials that he included in the version he did for Norton. He signed an agreement with Philip Roth in 2012 that predates his contract with Norton. So he's very much free to take it elsewhere. And that's exactly what's happening. One question for you. You mentioned that Norton had canceled Blake Bailey's memoir, in addition to the Philip Roth bio, he wrote three previous literary biographies. What's the fate of those books? So those have been, as far as I can tell, not affected in any way. They're still available for sale. Those were put out by different publishers, and no one has indicated that they plan to stop publishing those. And similarly, his foreign publishers in the UK and elsewhere never took the Philip Roth biography out of print after these allegations surfaced. So I think with Norton, they felt like they had to make a decisive move, and that included distancing themselves fully from Mr. Bailey, dropping his memoir as well. All right. Alexandra, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Joining us now to talk about the latest in literary criticism, our critics, Dwight Garner and Jennifer Sly. Hey, guys. Hey, Pamela. Hi, Pamela. 
Dwight, let's start with you. You wrote about a biography of a novelist. I did. The book is called The Life She Wished to Live, and and the subtitle is A Biography of Marjorie Kinnon Rawlings, who, of course, wrote The Yearling. The writer of this book is Anne McCutcheon. I've always had an interest in Marjorie Kinnon Rawlings. I mean, A, I I, I spent a big chunk of my childhood in Southern Florida. There's a state park named after her down there, and you can visit Cross Creek, which which is where she lived, the orange grove she lived on. It's also the name of, of her memoir, which was a big deal. And it, her two major books are The Yearling, which is about a young boy and his pet deer. And the boy is ordered by his father to kill this deer, his constant companion, because the family is, is poor and the deer is eating too much of their corn. And, and it's a very moving book, and yet it's not sentimental. It, it's, it's, it's quite a good book. As I say in my review, it's problematic now. Rawlings uses the N-word in this book in a way that arguably that writers like Twain did in Huckleberry Finn, but it's problematic. And it's also a book that's sort of misperceived because people see it. Think of it now. It won the Pulitzer Prize in 1939, but it's often seen now as more of a kid's book, and it's really not. I haven't read The Yearling. So, I mean, I, I feel like growing up in Canada, we mostly read like Margaret Atwood and Robertson Davies. So, but I was really fascinated to read your review, Dwight, and about her life and this notion of writerly authenticity and focus. And it sounds like she stuck true to what she wanted to say in her work. It's true. She had an interesting life. I mean, she she was born in Washington, D.C. Her father did government work at, at the patent office. But, you know, she got out of college, moved to New York City with her with her husband. They mar- She married quite young, her first husband. And, you know, just tried to make a go of it in Manhattan. And she sort of did, but she had to sort of sell her soul every day, the way so many people do in the first move to York. She she worked for bad tabloid newspapers, and she did public relations work. And, and yet she really had a strong sense of who she was, and she knew that she had better stuff in her and was waiting to get it out. And one of the one of the great strokes of luck in her life was that she sent an article that caught the eye of the great editor Maxwell Perkins. And Perkins encouraged her to send him her first novel, and she did, and he loved it. And it began this nearly 20-year relationship between Kenan Rawlings and Maxwell Perkins and some 700 letters. And as a matter of fact, the letters between them have been published, and, and they're quite lovely. And I mean, she wrote her two great books for him, The Yearling and Cross Creek, which is sort of a memoir about living there on her farm. And one of the great things about this book is, is the is the portrayal of her relationship with Maxwell Perkins. And B, the other thing is, she was just kind of a badass. I mean, she, she taught herself to hunt and to fish, and she drank way too much, and she wrecked cars. And people had never heard someone swear like she did. And she All just the things was, you like in a person, Dwight. Exactly. <laughs> it's just, it's in one little package. And, oh, and also, um, and she loved cooking. She, was, she wrote a book called Cross Creek Cookery, and she was obsessed. I mean, she did things like, you know, raise her own mallards and feed them a diet that made them delicious. And she, you know, and um, <laughs> she was just, she lived life to the full. And uh, alas, she had a lot of health problems and died relatively young. But she left two rather good books behind. Cross Creek Cookery. Is that a book that you've ever seen? Well, I've read a lot of it recently. And, and she's 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 nuts in a good way. I mean, she she has like, she has a way of eating okra, she claims, is the best way in the universe. And she gives you this recipe for it. She's undercooked it and eats it kind of cold, dipping it in some sauce. But but she's obsessed. I mean, she, she, she really was deeply, deeply into food in a way that few people were at that time. Jen, how about you? What did you write about this week? So I wrote about a really different kind of book. It's called Dedicated, and it's by Pete Davis. And it came out of a speech that he gave in 2018 to his fellow students in the Harvard Law School graduating class. And it really seemed to hit a chord. It went viral. And what he was talking about in the speech was juxtaposing what he called 
the defining characteristic of his generation, which is the notion of keeping one's options open, you know, a very particular kind of freedom, the freedom to always move on to the next thing. And posing against that, this notion of what he called the counterculture of commitment. And so this book is, it's an interesting combination. Like on the one hand, I think he really wanted to write something that was a political call to arms to basically suggest to people his age that in order to affect any real lasting change, and there's a lot of things that really do need to change that, you know, you really have to commit to something. But at the same time, there's a self-help element to this book. And it was interesting to see him try to merge the two, try to use the self-help in order to make a grander political case. Because in a way, what he's talking about when he talks about building political movements is trying to gain the trust of other people and really trying to see something through even during times when things feel uncomfortable, when they feel like they're not going to work, when dealing with other people especially can feel impossible. And so along with that, there is this sort of self-help element because he wants to build trust with the reader. So, you know, he doesn't want to make it too difficult for the reader to follow him and to agree with him. So he's he's really trying to toggle between these two registers. And it's one of those books where I, I can't say that it's really unsettling. He brings in some historical examples, but it's always to make his argument and to say, look, here are people who really stuck it through and achieved something. So he talks about things like, for instance, the Black freedom struggle. But at the same time, so it was a book that made me think, and I was impressed by the range of references that he brought in. You know, he he really quotes a lot from this Polish sociologist, Zygmunt Bauman, whose, you know, work that work I've read before. Bauman was somebody who looked at this notion of what he called liquid modernity. And it seems like a very sort of abstract idea, but Davis brings it in in such a way that I think it makes sense in the context of this book. So I was I was impressed by what he was trying to do here. There's a little subgenre of books that are made out of speeches, which oh yeah, <laughs> I have to say I was surprised to see you reviewing one because you know they're usually these like little mini books and have that kind of inspirational vibe to them that I don't always associate with. Jen Salai kind of books. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, I feel like, you know, a lot of the times I read books, and it did make me think about the kinds of books that I tend to be drawn to, which which isn't this kind of book. It's not this kind of book. It's usually a book that makes things look even more impossible <laughs> than they are, just to go deep into the history. And whereas this book, I think, really tries to show what's possible. And I picked it up partly because I was thinking a lot about the idea of trust. Like, I think that that's a central issue. I think it's it's always a central issue, but it feels really scarce right now and elusive in many ways. And so I was interested to see how this person approached it without whitewashing the past, but at the same time, trying to encourage other people of his generation to look at things in a way to see it as as something possible, to see change as something possible. I have to admit something about your review. Okay. I'm ready. <laughs> I have a kind of a, a knee-jerk resistance to new acronyms. So NFT, I, I kind of know what it stands for, but I really don't want to, I don't want to know, and I don't really want to know more about it. And YOLO, which is an acronym you mentioned <laughs> in your lead of your review, I didn't know how either meaning. Am I the only one? You guys both You know? had never heard of YOLO? 
I heard it. I've heard it. I just didn't, it didn't, I didn't interrogate it as they would say. I didn't want to know more. I just, and I didn't know that it meant, I guess, to most people, you only live once, but maybe you can explain why you brought this acronym up. We'll just move away from my not knowing it towards why you mention it in your review. The way that it's mentioned nowadays this notion of you only live once, it's its sort of seen as an opportunity or a justification for doing something momentarily reckless, like something fleeting, something that doesn't necessarily have to do with like larger change. It has to do with what you want to do because, you know, you only live once. Right. It sounds like it's just a kind of catch-all excuse for bad behavior. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, what Pete Davis says in his book is that he says actually one of the earlier, earliest, he says, known public uses of the acronym was back in the early 90s by a drummer for the Grateful Dead who opened this place called the Yolo Ranch. And for him, it was this notion of creating this musical community that he wanted a place where people could gather and really build something together. So it was almost the opposite in terms of YOLO, in that sense, was almost the opposite of how we consider it today. It was this idea that you go deeper into commitment instead of try to take flight from it, which I thought was an interesting way of looking at things. Was YOLO an acronym that you were using liberally before? <laughs> Am I the only one that wasn't using it? I wasn't using it, but okay. But I, 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 I had encountered it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Yeah, it does seem like it's part of the same larger family with speeches that become books. Yeah, yeah. And I, I and I think, you know, I mean, there's a reason why speeches come, become books in the sense that if somebody gives a speech and it goes viral, there's an indication that there's something in the speech that really touches on something that people are hungering for. I think the question often becomes, is the person able to take the 10 minutes of the speech and stretch it out over a 250-page book? And he touches on larger historical things that I would encourage people to actually go to the history, go to the sociology, which is actually, I think, more maybe disturbing and not necessarily as straightforward as he presents it. But at the same time, I think, again, it goes to the question of, of what we look for in a book and different books provide different kinds of things. And I think that there's a place for something like this, for people who are looking to understand where we are culturally and where we might be going. All right. I don't know if that's what your book did, Dwight, but let's run down the titles. <laughs> uh, I reviewed The Life She Wished to Live, a biography of Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings by Anne McCutcheon. And I reviewed Dedicated by Pete Davis. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. And you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. I write back, not right away, but I do. The Book Review Podcast is produced by the great Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media with a major assist from my colleague, John Williams. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.